This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Come here a sec while I tell you about another podcast on this network. It's called What Would You Do If? Now, it's a game that we've all kind of played while we've been driving with our friends. Like, what would you do if I spat at you right now? But these episodes are actually... They're very entertaining, but they're also enlightening because they give you some information. So there's episodes on like, what would you do if a bear attacked you? What would you do if you got stuck in a lift? What would you do if a baby was choking? And it's kind of funny, back and forth. They talk about what they would do, but then they also give you information on, you know, sometimes what you should do. So check it out. It's on the network and let me know what you think. This is What Would You Do If? The podcast to answer all of your What Would You Do If? questions. It's Callum and Jess here and every week we look at how we'd handle different situations. Before finding out what you should do if you're in them. So far we've looked at... What would you do if you saw someone stealing? A bear attacked you. The baby started choking. You were stuck in a lift. You can hear those episodes and loads more on headstuffpodcast.com with a new one every Monday. And welcome to this week's episode of Basically. Today I am talking to a woman that inspired me in a way that I didn't know I could be inspired. Her name is Dr. Catherine Mannix and she has written a book called With the End in Mind. And it is a book, I would call her an expert in dying, in how we die and the process of dying. And she's someone that I've wanted to talk to for so long and I am so very grateful that she is here. Dr. Catherine Mannix, thank you so much for joining me today. It's it's one of these episodes that is, is a is a is a personal milestone for me. I've always wanted to speak to you, so I'm very, very grateful for you for coming on. Well, that's just such a lovely thing to hear. And thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. Um your book with the end in mind uh is something that I read before my grandmother died. And it it changed my experience of losing her. It changed her experience of of dying for the better. And I'm just so grateful to you for 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 writing that book. But maybe for the listeners, let's. Uh, I I tend to have experts on this show. What would you consider yourself an expert in? Well, I think anybody who's listening who's a palliative care person will want me to just start by saying palliative care is expertise in symptom management. And so that's not really about end of life care. Yes. But we do meet a lot of people who are towards the end of their lives. And so the book that I've written and the campaigning that I'm doing is very specifically about the end of our lives and to help people to just be more wise and um, anticipate what's likely to happen rather than the kind of Hollywood soap opera versions of that that we get fed all the time. And I think that's really important for people because for so long, so first of all, I think when people come in contact with palliative care, they immediately assume that this is, that death is imminent. And when, when I experienced it with my grandmother, they put that end of life symbol up on the door and I thought, you know, God, I want, I want to know like how many days, how many hours, what are we talking here? And something that I found very comforting in your book is, is how is how you manage, how you, I mean, you can't predict, but how those things, how people talk about the end and how I didn't get a chance to speak to the palliative care doctor before that end of life symbol went on the door. And I wish that I had. So what are the kinds of things that most frequently 
come up when people are given these diagnoses? But it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because it's a journey for for everybody. When I first started in palliative care, that was the 1980s, and almost all of our patients in those days had cancer. Where now these days, perhaps half of the people who are on a palliative care team's caseload might be people with cancer, and the other half will be people who have, you know, all of the other things that we do eventually die of: heart disease and lung disease and kidneys that aren't working properly and liver disease and all, all of those different sorts of things. But when people are first told that they've got a, an illness that will eventually limit their lives, they ask straight away, how long? How long have I got? Um, and I think that they think that when we don't answer that question at that point in time, it's because we somehow feel that you know we know the answer, but we're not sharing it rather than actually, do you know, we have no idea. And to be able to say to somebody, it all depends how you go on, just seems a little bit not medical, doesn't it? It doesn't sound very specialist. And uh, and yet that is exactly the truth, that over the next period of time, we'll see how you go on. And some people are going to have treatment that will really put their disease into reverse and they'll gain time from having had that treatment and other people will have treatment in the hope that it will gain them more time and the treatment doesn't work so well for them. And what we see is one group of people looking better and the other group of people just finding it harder and harder to carry on being as well as they used to be. And it's that trajectory that helps us then to estimate. And what I say to my patients is, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you how we guess. And then you will be able to help me with the guesswork. And that means also, of course, it's a partnership. So I'm not doing stuff to you. You're the expert in you. And I've got some expertise in symptom management and planning ahead for what happens at the very end of life. Let's be a team. Let's bring all your teammates in. And I'm part of a team as well. So my team will join in and together we'll work this out. We'll walk with you. And as things change, we'll see the speed at which things are changing. And that will help us to work out how much longer is left and what the challenges might be along the way for you. What are those things that that you need to see trends in, that you need to see changing, that allow you to help to to make those guesses? So what's interesting for me, Steph, is that um, it's very similar from one illness to another. You would think that it would be about you know, the size of the cancer lumps or what the breathing tests show in lung disease, but it's actually much more about how much energy we've got. And the thing that we'll see, and anybody who's listening to us now will have seen this, that when people are really ill, including when we're really ill and we're going to get better, what happens is we run out of energy. If you've ever had real flu, as opposed to man flu, (laughs) then, you know, you can't get out of bed. You are so desperate for that cup of tea. That might just be me, of course. But you know, you might get as far as the kitchen to put on the kettle, but then you need to sit down for 10 minutes and the kettle's gone cold again before you can pour the tea into the, pour the water into the pot. So when we're really sick, we struggle for energy. And when an illness that we're not going to get better from is gradually advancing, the thing that we notice is how much less energy a person has got over time. We've all got that uh, 
a relative who likes to keep the house really spick and span. And now when we visit, the house perhaps isn't quite as spick and span as it used to be, or they confine us to the one room that they can keep to their standard, but they haven't been able to manage the rest of the house. And they might feel embarrassed about that as well. Or it might be somebody who liked to get out every day and they would do their one mile walk. And now they're telling us that they're struggling to do half of that distance quarter of that distance they're inclined actually not to walk anymore they'll ask somebody for a lift along to the shop so you gradually see that they manage their energy and do what they can with it but it's progressively less and a time will come eventually when the person can't do very much at all they're mainly sitting down pottering about in a small space maybe spending much more time in bed getting up later going to bed earlier And gradually towards the end of somebody's life, what we'll find is that they're mainly sitting down and dropping off to sleep a lot of the time. Now, that sleep is really, really important. And we also all have friends and relatives, don't we, who they're not going to be weak. They're not going to have that sleep. And it's so important that they understand that this sleep is their friend. This sleep is like putting your battery back on its charger. And when you wake up from your sleep, you'll have a bit more energy. The problem is the battery's wonky now. It's like one of those really old mobile phones where you have to charge it longer and longer to get less and less use out of it. So we sleep longer and longer and the periods of being awake get shorter. But if the illness hasn't interfered with our mind and with our brain, then when we're awake, it's us, you know, our usual selves, same sense of humor and everything. And gradually, as time goes by, people are gradually just more and more inclined to sit, be quiet, fall in and out of being asleep. And gradually, during those periods of being asleep, they will be not just asleep. Now, that's interesting. Are you talking about people who, sorry, I'm just imagining some elderly relatives that you know they're not they're not sick they're just they're just quite old and they fall in and out of sleep are you talking about people who who have a diagnosis of illness or just in general when we come later this in life? is this is the way our batteries wear out and okay. it doesn't really matter whether what's wearing our batteries out is the illness is is, is an illness. illness or if we live long enough we collect illnesses okay. or whether in fact it's just that our body is exhausted because we're very, very old. And, you know, all of our organs are the same age as we are. So um, at the moment, my my parents uh, who are in their 80s help out with an elderly couple, as they refer to them, who live locally, um, who are in their 90s, their late 90s. And recently, one of that couple now is spending lots and lots of time asleep. And so they, who've obviously read my book, they were part of my proofreading team, have been chatting now to the spouse of this family friend to just say, you know, I wonder what you think is going on because now there's so much sleeping going on. I wonder if this is the beginning of another change in the way this person's going to be. So yes, it's a it's the way we you know when planes are circling in the sky to come in for a runway and they've got to wait for a while. This is this is the way we circle, if you okay. like. This is this is the waiting period so as we wind down towards the very end of our lives, whatever is causing that. So sometimes those people they're not just asleep in those longer periods. It's deeper than sleep, you were saying. So 
we've eventually reached a stage where the person is mainly asleep, awake a bit of the time, uh, possibly able to eat or drink. Very often towards the end of life, people are not particularly interested in eating and drinking. And then we have the difficulty that we show people that we love them by feeding them. Um, so that can be quite hard for families to accept that actually all they want is a tiny taste of something. So thinking about tiny tastes of gorgeous things is a really good way that we can show our love without overwhelming somebody who just doesn't want to see a big plate of food anymore. But during those periods of sleep now, something changes that the person themselves isn't aware of, but we will know that it's happened. It might be there's um, there's a phone call or there's a visitor or it's time for one of their regular medicines and we can't wake them up for that. And it doesn't matter how hard we try, they are completely unrousable because now they're not just asleep. During their sleep, they've dipped into complete unconsciousness, in, into a coma, if you like. And then gradually that lightens and they wake up again and they tell us they've had a nice sleep and they've got no notion that there was a point where they weren't rousable. So human beings don't notice when we become unconscious, but the family will know that that's happened or the staff who are looking after that person will know that that's happened. And it's important because although dying itself doesn't really cause any symptoms apart from just being very weary and gradually becoming unconscious, the illness that we're dying from might cause symptoms. And we don't want people to miss out on the medicines that keep those symptoms at bay. So once the point comes where we start to notice that there are periods when we can't waken the person up, we generally shift any medicines that we're giving them then from something they have to swallow two or three or four times a day to either a very long acting single dose a day or a skin patch or one of those little syringe pumps just so that we don't have the possibility that they'll fall asleep dip into unconsciousness, it'll be time for their painkillers or their nausea drugs or their breathlessness drugs, and we can't wake them up to take them. And by the time they wake up again, all of the pain or the itch or the breathlessness or whatever it is has come back. We don't want that to happen. Okay. So there's a bit of concern about using these syringe drivers. You know, there's a kind of a rumor that, you know, once the syringe driver starts, you're going to die soon as though the syringe driver kills people. So that's yeah. another one of those myths, isn't it, yeah. that we need to talk about. It's true that people start to dip into unconsciousness for periods of time before they die. So that would be the time that you would start the syringe driver, but they're not dying because of the syringe driver. And in fact, we use the syringe driver for people who are nowhere near dying, but they're just too nauseated to take their medicines at the moment. So we're injecting them under their skin instead so they get the benefit, but they don't have to try and swallow them and keep them down. Uh, we use syringe drivers after people have had surgery in the hospital when they're just going to be off their food and unable to swallow for a few days, but then they're going to be right as rain again. So the syringe driver itself is completely safe but we often use it towards the very end of somebody's life to keep them from having their symptoms come back. So, so now we've got the situation where we've moved from somebody who was up and about but didn't have as much energy into a phase where they needed extra naps to build their energy into this phase now where they're in a chair or in bed almost all of the time, coming and going, in and out of being awake, and when they're asleep, dipping into unconsciousness. And eventually what happens is that the person will be unconscious all of the time. 
Now, when we're unconscious, by definition, what it means is the brain isn't working. Everything's switching off in the brain. And the only bit that is still definitely working is the bit that works our breathing. It's right down at the back of the brain, at the top of the spinal cord. It's called the respiratory center. And it runs breathing for us when we're not awake and thinking about it. So we don't really think about our breathing most of the time. Now, now everybody who's listening to us is thinking about their breathing yeah. <laughs> because, because we've mentioned it. So that's worth mentioning, isn't it? That it's going on. We don't think about it. We take it for, brand, for granted. But under some circumstances, we need to think about it. So you're sitting in front of a microphone and you're managing your breathing so that you don't breathe in a way that makes a noise down your microphone. Yeah. And I'm trying to speak in sensible phrases. So I'm trying to take breaths that don't sound like a great big heaving suck on my microphone at my end and then enough breath that I can manage it to breathe out and say a whole sensible phrase in one breath. And if we were out for a run, we'd be managing our breathing to get into the rhythm of the running or, or whatever it is. But most of the time, we don't give our breathing any attention. It just happens in and out millions of times over a lifetime. Now what starts to happen is that the brainstem breathing center just takes over that breathing. And it's a reflex and it's a cycle. And the cycle goes between deep breathing and then shallow breathing and then back to deep breathing again in cycles. And it also goes between fast breathing and slow breathing. So getting slower and slower and slower till there are gaps and then quite long gaps. And then suddenly it starts again with faster breathing and then slows and slows and slows. And that's just a reflex that happens. And that's just a complete okay. reflex. The brain is driving that. And most of us have never seen a person who's completely unconscious because usually if you were completely unconscious, you'd be in a hospital, you'd be in an intensive care unit, you'd be being kept alive because your brain was switching off. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps the most unconscious we will have seen people socially is to see somebody so drunk that they've passed out. And what we would normally do for somebody who's as drunk as that is we would lie them in that recovery position, you know, where you lie them on the side right, yeah. and then tip them gently forward. And that's just to stop the saliva pooling in the back of the throat getting down into their lungs and, and tickling things and maybe giving them a chest infection. Well, clearly at the very end of somebody's life, we don't want to lie them in a recovery position. We want them to be able to lie in a position that's comfortable it, when they do their periods of being awake. And we want to be able to hold their hand and, you know, be around them. Yeah. So here's this person now who's unconscious. And if you've never seen that happen before, then there could be phases in that breathing cycle where it's quite deep, maybe it's slow, and because they can't feel their throat anymore, they can't feel the bit of the throat where the vocal cords are, where the larynx is. So they might breathe out with their vocal cords just a little bit tight, which is how we speak. And so as they breathe out, they make a voice noise, a kind of mmm. Yeah. If you've never seen that before, you would think, oh, what, what's this person trying to say? Are they groaning? Have they got pain? Are they upset? Are they distressed? So it's really important that other people who've seen it before can see this happening and say, this is an unconscious noise because they're just breathing out 
over their vocal cords. This is normal. This is safe. This is okay. Um, and if the family are, are really worried about it, of course, it's important that we professionals go along and check to just be sure that this isn't a person who's groaning and upset. And at other points in the cycle, it might be that it's at the shallow phase, but fast. And that fast, shallow breathing might sound like somebody panting. It might sound like they're struggling to breathe or trying to catch their breath. And again, they are not aware of their breathing. They're deeply, deeply unconscious. But it's disconcerting for families to see this if there's nobody there to explain to them that this person is not in distress with this breathing. This is part of the breathing reflex that we expect to see. And gradually over hours, as they see the cycle moving backwards and forwards, they start to get it. Oh yeah, this is that breathing that he was doing half an hour ago. And then it changed and it made a different noise. And now he's doing this again. And so they start to become a bit more familiar with it. The other thing that happens because they're not any longer able to feel the back of their throat, you know, all, all those sensory messages have been switched off. There may be a bit of saliva in the back of the throat or a bit of the fluid that we've been using to keep their mouths comfortable. You know, those little um, sticks with like toothbrushy things on the end that we use to keep people's mouths clean. And they don't swallow it. It just sits there. Now, if you or I had a little bit of a crumb or a bit of tea at the back of our throat, we would really struggle with that, wouldn't we? We would cough and try and clear our throat, swallow. We might even gag or retch if it was really tickling us. They just lie there and it doesn't bother them. But the air is moving in and out of their lungs through it. And we know what air does in a bit of fluid. It bubbles. And that bubbling noise makes a kind of weird clicking, rattling noise. And people refer to it as the death rattle rattle because that's the only time they ever hear it. yeah. Yeah. And they get very upset about it because you would think if that was happening in the back of your throat, how distressing that would be. But this person isn't distressed. Just look at them. Their breathing isn't changing. Their pulse hasn't started racing. They're not frowning. They're not grimacing. They're not coughing. They can't feel it. And the fact that they can't feel it tells me that this person who you love, who you're watching over, is no longer aware of their throat. They are deeply unconscious. They are way past caring about a bit of stuff in the back of their throat. So although it sounds weird to us listening to it, it's a comforting sign in terms of the person themselves not being distressed. And can I ask you about, so at this point, um, are any of those cycles through that breathing, Do is there any indication of how long someone can remain in that state on those syringe pumps or or is you know is there a sign at that point of how long this could go on or or are those indications that like once you reach that sort of breathing it's probably a matter of days or hours or yeah it's a really really great question and the answer is it could be hours to days and it's really hard to tell from one person to another for some people, it's really very quick and you start, you, you see this cycle repeat maybe two or three times and then the pauses in the slow phase become very long and then there's an out breath that just isn't followed by another in breath. That's, that's the last breath. So it's very not Hollywood. Yeah. You know, there's none of that sudden 
choking, feeling I'm fading away, uh, sitting up and telling people they are adopted. <laughs> None of that stuff that happens on screens. It's very, very gentle, sometimes so gentle that, you know, we who work in palliative care will walk into the room, person will be lying on their bed with family all around them, might be, a, you know, a, a cat on their lap and a grandchild on the pillow. And nobody's noticed that the person isn't breathing anymore because it's been so gentle and the previous gaps were so long that actually it's just happened without it, you know, with no fuss at all. But for some people that those cycles of breathing can go on for quite a long time. And what's quite interesting is that it's partly about how healthy the underlying person's body is. So somebody who is fairly young, but who's got an illness that's made one part of their body fail. So a young person with a, a brain tumour or a young person who's developed a particular sort of cancer that's overwhelmed their lungs, for example, but the rest of their body is fit and they might be in this state of unconsciousness with these reflex breathing cycles for quite a long time. And an older person who's got you know, heart's not so good anymore, the lungs aren't great, the circulation to the brain hasn't been very good, you know, lots of little bits of things wrong with them, so they haven't been very healthy for a long time, then this might not last nearly so long. But a really lovely observation that a, a general practitioner I once worked with made was that once people are into their mid to late 80s, they die a young person's death. They are the fit elderly who survived to get to old age. And sometimes it can take quite a long time wow, just okay. because of the intrinsic fitness they have that's got them to this great age. Yeah. So it's very, very hard to tell. And so when the doctors or nurses might be popping in and out, because of course the important people here are this person who's doing their dying and the people they love. And the doctors and nurses, they're, they're bit part players. They shouldn't be centre stage at all. But one of the things we would do would be to check other things like um, as dying proceeds, the heartbeat gets less strong, the blood pressure starts to drop. And so you start to notice that the uh, bits of, of body that are not under the blankets start to cool. So you get cold hands and a cold nose. And then gradually, even the bits of the body that are under the blanket, cold toes, cold kneecaps, that's starting to tell us more information about the fact that this person's body is really winding down now. And what um, happens sometimes, well, in my experience, there were moments of consciousness, like short moments of consciousness, but in between these long moments of unconsciousness where we were all sort of gathered and the breathing had changed and it was you couldn't rouse her and but then she would wake and we would be yeah. like oh god all right okay we have started this cycle again you know like so she's back and so we're not in yeah. this phase anymore but then it would go again or she wouldn't remember the last time she had woken up are yeah, they yeah so it, it, you're right and that's all part of this cycle of sleep wake sleep wake and then dipping into that unconsciousness whilst they're asleep and it, and those periods can get longer and longer and yet they can still rouse yes, okay. and wake up again and, you know, wonder, wonder where a particular, a particular person is. Very often we'll have, there's, there's a little bit of unfinished business sometimes. We're waiting for a piece of news. We're waiting for a particular visitor to arrive. 
it's very, very curious. We don't understand what the timing is of the moment of dying. Okay. And a lot of families tell us that, you know, somebody seemed to be hanging on for something. And then the news came that the baby was safely born or the long lost son from Canada came in the door and they heard his voice. Yeah. And within minutes, they'd relaxed back into that unconsciousness and their breathing had slowed down and stopped. We don't understand it. The other thing that we see is somebody who's constantly accompanied, you know, the family um, makes a rotor and there's always a couple of people in the room. And then there's this one minute where the two people who were on duty, one of them's gone out to the loo and the other one gets called out for a phone call. And isn't that the moment where the person's breathing slows down and stops? And it seems to happen more often than you would think it could happen by random chance that some people need to be alone at the moment where they just relax into those very last breaths. And we just don't understand it. Yeah. I quite like that there's still some mystery about it in some way. It's really interesting to me that we don't know all of the answers. And you do have the sense when you're sitting at a deathbed, and I bet you had the same sense with your grandmother, that you are in the presence of something very profound going yeah. on, some great mystery happening. And it, it, there is a sense of with awe, isn't stuff. there? There is. And you do feel, you do feel like there's like this is a almost like a divine it's a quite a spiritual thing and I'm not normally a very spiritual person but you know you just definitely feel like someone somewhere up there knows what's going on here because it all seems so like it, it all seems so natural like it, there's a process happening that I don't understand but it's definitely happening and it's happening in other rooms in this hospital in the in a very similar way and we don't understand it but I'm not great with curiosities I would rather be like here is the schedule and this is the date you know the way some people would say like would you like mm. to know if you could be told what date you were going to die would you want that information I will always say yes absolutely I want the date and the time and the manner and then I'll go about living my life until it comes mm. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And that other thing that you said, which I think is really, really important, is that here in this hospital or in this town or in this on this earth, there are other people at this moment sitting around other beds watching exactly this same process. And that, I think, is a really interesting thing because we, we in Britain still think that Ireland is good at death in a way that we're not. Well, and we're good at the fact, what I hear from my Irish friends and relatives is that they're really good at um, funerals. funerals. Yes. <laughs> but the dying, the, that, that, that sense that you would now call and say goodbye and it was good to know you to somebody, maybe those traditions are starting to be lost. But the idea that this is a recognisable process, I think I compare it very often when I'm chatting to people and, and a little bit in the book as well, to birth, which is a process that everybody knows about. You know, we have TV programmes about midwifery units and we've got um, television dramas about midwives. And everybody knows that there's a sequence of events to giving birth to a baby um, and that they happen the bits of that process in roughly the same order from one person to the next. Yet when you're sitting with your newborn baby in your arms, you feel like you've had an absolutely unique experience 
But the midwife has seen exactly the same process Millions that she or he always sees. And it's the same for dying, really, that it's it's an individual process because it's this person in this family with this illness in these circumstances. And yet the process we're observing is the same process from one person to another. And what are the conversations that you think aren't happening, that that should be happening around around death and dying the choices that are on offer to people because you know if you explain if you if you if you talk about it in terms of birth you know people have birth plans some people want a home birth some people want a midwife some people want a doctor you know and i suppose if if you use that analogy there are options for death in in the same way yeah. it's just pretty scary to think about it so absolutely right well, well birth is pretty scary to think about isn't it actually you get something good at the end of it you know there's a new life whereas i you, think you, people... well you do so just just to, just to think about that comparison between birth and death for a moment i would say that most women giving birth experience a lot more pain than most people on their deathbeds wow yeah you're probably not wrong there yeah, and, and yet we don't we don't think about that, and you know, women voluntarily go back and do that again. Yeah. So we get very hung up on the experience of the deathbed, um, and I think we awfulize it in some way. But what we're awfulizing is our experience of what we think that person is experiencing. Right. Okay. And so I've had lots and lots of letters from people who've read the book. Um, saying, I, you know, I thought my beloved person was in agony. I thought my beloved person was choking or breathless. And, you know, I've read your descriptions now of ordinary dying. Um, and somebody wrote to me recently and said, you know, I, I, I realize now that my mum had a, fi- a Hilton five-star death. Um, yeah. And yet for years, I've been traumatized by what noises I heard her making as she was dying that I mistook for agony. So I think it is really important that we talk about it. So the first thing that we t- we need to talk about is what ordinary dying actually looks like and sounds like. And I describe it pretty much in the way we've just been chatting about it now to my patients. And I usually do that by asking them what they're expecting. Yeah. And usually they're incredibly relieved that somebody's actually taken the lid off that box because everybody else is tiptoeing around it. We're not going to mention the D words. We're not going to talk about it. So, you know, what do you think might be going to happen in the future? How do you think it's likely to happen? And they haven't seen it before and they don't know what to expect, but they think it's probably going to be terrible because that's what you read about in the newspapers. And, you know, we mustn't be silly about this. There are some people who do die in great discomfort, but it's very, very rare. But that will usually be then a complaint to a hospital that will get into the local newspapers and we'll all know about it. Yes. Yeah. So we have to be just a little bit careful about assuming that what we read in the papers is the only version of the truth. We only read about plane crashes in the papers. We don't read about planes that take off on time and land safely, do we? <laughs> so here, here is this thing, we need to know more about it. So to de- be able to describe it to somebody when they tell me that they think there's going to be something terrible, I can say, well, that, that's, you know, that's interesting because I've seen it a lot of times and what you're expecting sounds an awful lot worse than what I'm expecting. Um, so if you like, if you think it would help you, I will describe to you what I usually see 
And, you know, if you want me to stop at any point, I promise you I'll stop. But would you like me to describe it to you? And some people are quite keen and some people aren't quite so sure. And, you know, just remind them that they can say stop at any point. Okay. So now we talk about that, you know, diminution of energy, the needing to sleep more, all of those things right up to unconscious breathing. And by that stage, you know what your family would see and hear if they were in the room and how we'll be sure to explain it to them. And that very last breath that simply is just another breath that hasn't got another breath after it. So, you know, no sudden awfulness at the very end. And nobody's ever stopped me. One person's wife stopped me once. But apart from that, I've probably had that conversation, I don't know, thousands of times. Nobody's ever stopped me. But what happens at the end is that this person says, oh, wow, I'd really like you to tell my family that. And you realize the power that there is in knowing what to expect instead of imagining what to expect. And everybody's got a different, horrible scenario in their head. Now we're all on the same page. Now we can talk to each other about how mum's energy is changing, um, how much dad is sleeping now, how much... Uh, Uncle Rory is making a noise as he breathes and what do we think that's about and how are we explaining that to the nieces and nephews? And that's an important part of this, isn't it? So the first thing I think we need to talk about is just what dying looks like and sounds like so we're not discombobulated by it when it's happening to somebody that we love. And then the thing is, if you know that that's how it's going to be, that you're going to be mainly in bed and you're going to sleep a lot and we need to keep an eye on the symptoms of the illnesses that you've got to make sure those symptoms don't come back. Um, and you'll still want to get in and out of bed to use the toilet, for example. Um, where are we going to be able to do that? So, you know, I'm thinking about your house now where your bedroom is upstairs, but your bathroom is downstairs. And those legs are not going to feel like doing those stairs several times a day. Well, can we think about how that's going to work? Are we going to have a bed in your living room so that you can still toddle along to the toilet for as long as you're still mobile? Or are we going to put a commode in your bedroom? Or is that just the most awful idea for you? Would you rather be somewhere where there's care on tap 24-7? You know, is that, do you want to look at what the local residential care facilities are like? Because hospital isn't a comfortable gentle place to die it's a noisy place to be in and you know there are very kind nurses and doctors and other care workers there if you happen to be dying in hospital they'll take great care of you but it's probably not the most conducive place for you and the people that you love so let's think about the possibilities so just like you were talking about a birth plan what's really lovely is when you make your birth plan and you discuss it with your midwife she doesn't laugh at you and, you know, that's really kind because we've got all these highfalutin ideas and she knows because it's your first baby. She knows all those ideas are going to go out the window when you're <laughs> actually in labour. But the other thing she asks you to do is make a plan B. If we can't do that, if this happens or that happens or the other happens, how do you want us to respond to that? So that's the next bit of the conversation about dying which might involve a conversation now with your doctor or your nurse specialist who knows you very well to say for the illness that I've got doc what are the things that might go wrong 
where we'd need a plan to get everything back on track again. So you could imagine that somebody, uh, for example, who has a brain tumour, um, they might get headaches, they might get nausea. If the pressure in your head goes up, it's very nauseating. And that might um, the pressure might cause them to have fits. So we need some ideas for what would we do at home if this person started to have a very bad headache or started to have a lot of nausea or started to vomit or what should the family do if they if they have a seizure so that we don't suddenly have an emergency call and an ambulance dragging this person off to hospital if that's not what they wanted. We have an emergency call and an ambulance crew comes and here's the plan written with the person's collaboration by their doctor that says this person's got a brain tumor and if they start having fits the first thing you should do is this and the second thing you should do is this and all the drugs you'll need are in a box in the fridge um, and here's a prescription for you to be able to administer them so it's planning ahead kind of the family things and where we're going to be looked after and then it's planning ahead the medical things so we've thought in detail about how to help this person to be in the place they want to be and as awake as they would like to be for as long as they can be. And for those listening who don't have you know who who are living their life now they don't have any diagnoses they don't have any illness but they're listening to the podcast and they think I would like you know I, I think that these conversations need to happen or should people be considering it even in, in the absence of, of a terminal diagnosis or, or the end not being in sight? Are there things that should be discussed now or is it something that you think should be left until later? I think that the, the least good plan is to leave it till later because we'll always leave it till later and it's always too late by the time we get round to it. Um, you know, there's that Chinese proverb, when's the best time to plant a tree? And the answer is 20 years ago. And when's the second best time to plant a tree? And that's today. Yeah. So um, I think that these are conversations we should normalize. And actually, the conversation itself isn't about illness. It's about something much more positive. It's about what really matters to us. What really matters to us is how we make sure that those things happen and any other care that we might need gets wrapped around that. So you can have a what matters to me conversation when your family gathers. Just go around the room and say what matters. Um, we have a, an, an American daughter-in-law, so we now keep Thanksgiving. And that's really interesting because everybody goes around and says, what they're thankful for. And it's such a positive conversation. And I could imagine a similar conversation, which is what are the things that matter to me and that people in my family will talk about. Some of them will talk about nature. Some of them will talk about music. Some of them will talk about just the family and the friends that they love. They'll definitely talk about their, their creatures. So our kids all have pets that they would you know, really love to have with them as a consolation if they were struggling in any way. So for all of us, there are things that really matter and we can have those conversations. We get very hung up on where people will die as though the room that the bed is in is very important. And, and you know, for me, Stephanie, I'd like to be in my bed looking out of my window at my apple tree, but I'm fit and I'm relatively young at the moment. Yeah 
may be that actually when the time comes, I'm not well enough to manage my stairs. Um, I'm not even living in this house anymore. Who knows? What's really important, the research shows us, isn't the bed or the room, but the people around the bed. So what matters to me is the people that I love being with me. Um, what else matters to me is being able to see sky and trees and nature. Uh, some people, what matters to them is is music and they've got their kind of their soundtrack for being played if they're sick in hospital or if they're dying. I'm a silence person. So I'll find hospital really hard because of all the, you know, the bleeps going yeah. off of different bits of machines and things. Um, I won't want some person who doesn't know me coming in and saying, oh, it's very quiet in here. I'll put the radio on to cheer you up. No, I, I'll be relishing that silence. So it's important, isn't it? Because we can't really guess to know what really matters to other people and to start that really young. And then maybe we also need a point where we start to say, okay, if I was so sick that I was dying, what would still be really important to me then? So one of the things that we do is we start um, breast cancer screening at a particular age for young women, don't we? They, they get sent for, yeah. for routine mammography. Um, and when people get a bit older, they get sent for, for bowel cancer screening. Why don't we have a birthday where the healthcare system sends us a questionnaire to start filling in about the things that really matter to us so that at some point in the future, not if, but when we are dying, because, spoiler, we all will die, um, we've already started to think about the things that matter most to us and where we'd like to be and how we'd like things to be. And then as the illnesses that might be the cause of the end of our life gradually start to appear in our lives, we can start to refine that list. We can start to tailor it to what now is currently happening to us and to our health. It actually sounds like I, and we have a couple of questions from listeners around death anxiety, and it's something that I would say that I have. But actually, now that you're talking about it like that, it actually sounds like a great privilege to be able to have have those conversations and die in the way that you've described and not in some sort of, you know, tragedy where where it is instant um where you get to notice like I'm I'm just feeling very grateful that all all of those things that you've described I went through with my grandmother and I saw each of those stages and I didn't walk into her room one day and she was dead you know that like mm. there are a lot worse ways to die than the way that you've described but the way that you've described is kind of the one that I have had most anxiety about because because of because of Hollywood I suppose yeah yeah, and and it is interesting, isn't it, that ordinary dying is not very exciting. It's not the stuff of Hollywood. Um, and I was talking to um, there's a there's a British actress and comedian called Carrie Ann Lloyd who runs a podcast called The Grief Cast, and she and I were chatting about exactly this because I get very cross about really badly depicted deaths on soap operas. Yeah. And Carrie had said to me, yeah, but the thing is, that episode is not about the death. That episode is about the characters around the death. And it's a, it's a device to change their behavior and twist the next bit of their plot 
the death scenes are not about the person who's dying. Yeah. And I never really thought about that before. So that's why it's always unusual dying, because real dying is about as interesting as watching paint dry if you're not a person who loves the person who's dying. Do you know? It's so gradual. It's so gentle. It's not the stuff of dramas. The the stuff that's really important that's happening in that room is the stuff that's happening in the minds of the people who are the participants. And we don't know what's happening in the mind of the unconscious person. We It seems very likely that they are, in fact, utterly unconscious. But for the rest of us, you know, I remember sitting at my grandmother's side when she was in this phase and hearing those noises and trying to work out what she was trying to say to me and checking whether she was uncomfortable. And I'd been a consultant in palliative care for, you know, quite a long time by then. And so one half of my brain was being a worried granddaughter and the other half of my brain was saying, you know that she is unconscious, look at her. This is the thing that you've talked so many families through. You have to talk yourself through this now. She is completely comfortable. The person who's uncomfortable in this room is you. Yeah, that's pretty profound. And and that is, and I suppose that's coming back to the drama as well, because it death is uncomfortable for those who live on. Yeah. Because they have to live on without that person. But And we can only imagine, but for the person who's dead, it's it's not it's 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 nothing it's the same as you don't really remember being born probably mm, um, i mean that's interesting isn't it because i do meet people whose death anxiety is not about what the experience of dying will be like but the idea of oblivion just completely boggles their mind um or the idea of an afterlife that they've got no control over completely boggles their mind. So it's really interesting that, you know, you might think that people of faith would be consoled by their faith. And some of them really, really are. And some of them are but likewise, some people who are, you know, very devout atheists are very consoled by the idea of nothing. I think of it like, because I, I spoke to my grandmother a lot, she was very devout, but worried at the end that maybe she hadn't been good, a good enough Catholic. But I do consider it like I was, I was in that place for plenty of time before I was born and that's where I'll go back to I don't remember that so I probably won't have to worry about it when I'm there the next time because it's it's mm. it's not a it's a conscious place I just want to um I've had some questions from listeners but I think you've actually answered a lot of them for people um uh just one that I would question is um a lot of people are asking about you know how to have these conversations which you've outlined or how to know when the end is near um, and people who have death anxiety. Do you have any advice for people on how to speak about these things with children? Would you do it in the exact same way? Or or how would you kind of prepare a child for, for an, an older relative who's about to die? God, that's such a great question. And it's so important, isn't it? Because we think that we should protect children and we protect them by not saying. But children have such fantastic antennae. They know that their grown-ups are distressed and their imaginations then fill in the gaps. So there's quite good research now that says that sharing information with children is quite important, but it has to be age-appropriate. So you know, children as, as young as two know when their grown-ups are distressed and they know when a person who used to be there isn't there anymore. 
um, but they don't really understand the concept of dead. Whereas children at nine are able to understand about death as a permanent thing that happens generally to things that have been alive, you know, animals and plants and even people. And gradually we learn that even people I love can die and even I can die. And very often during that kind of interim phase, there's a period of children being quite anxious uh, about, are you going to die, mummy? Are you going to die, daddy? And um, we have to answer them honestly by saying, well, uh, someday will come when I will die. But for most of us, we're fortunate to be able to say that won't happen until I'm a very old person and even you will be an old person by then. It's not going to happen soon. You're not going to be on your own. There won't You won't be somebody with nobody to love them and nobody to look after them. And those very, very kind of concrete specific ways of talking about it are really important. Um, there's uh, a group at Oxford University who are um, giving advice about talking to children and they've developed that from their um, psychiatry practice of looking at the way children and young people deal with adversity. And mm-hmm. um, One of their findings is that um, bereaved children become disturbed, you know, emotionally distressed adults, the less information they've had in preparation for a bereavement rather than the more information they've had in preparation for bereavement. So a little bit like we should be starting the conversations about our own end of life, not there, but with these, what really matters to me, what my values are, what really gives joy to my life conversations we need to be starting with really small children when we're out on walks and you find a dead beetle um, you need to stop and look at the beetle you need to pick it up so you don't show uh, a kind of sense of disgust for dead things that dead things are just it's just ordinary and it's interesting and kids are absolutely fascinated by those things and a dead beetle look at it it's not moving it's not breathing it's it just it doesn't know anything it doesn't even know that it's dead and gradually what will happen is its body will just turn back into soil so let's just put it back in the grass here now for that to happen so we don't have a special voice for talking about death we don't get very sad oh poor beetle is dead no just interesting beetle is dead and gradually they have now some pegs to hang ideas on when we need to talk about being dead and actually we're talking about grandma rather than a beetle that's fascinating Catherine um yeah you're so right just to kind of normalize it from 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 day one because I know like I have friends who have kids and like for example one of them <laughs> their fish died and there was this big panic to go out and replace the fish before the child knew because they didn't want to have the conversations about death and so then the fish was like the the fish just kept returning and and then you know i was saying like you can't keep doing this because what about when someone dies that you yeah. can't replace you're going to you're it's much easier to have the conversation <laughs> about the fish than have the conversation about grandma like um, yeah, and, and that's that's absolutely the point of having pets, isn't it? Is to learn about life cycles. Yeah. Um, I I wrote in the book about our, our goldfish because um, we had pets, so we could talk about dying. I mean, you can't really not talk about dying in a house where the mummy 
works in a hospice and the daddy is a pathologist. You know, there's there's a thing going on there, isn't there? But in fact, our kids didn't have a bereavement until my own granddad was dying. And I shot off very early in the morning to try and see him before he died. In fact, I didn't get there in time. But as I was leaving the house, I could see our goldfish was kind of swimming on one side and only flapping one fin. And I'm thinking, no, I'm just going to have to leave that for daddy to sort out with with the kids who were like three and seven, something like that. So when I phoned them that night to let them know that great grandpa had died, uh, they had to tell me very solemnly that uh, Johnny the goldfish had also died um, and that it was being kept for me in a jug in the fridge so that I could say goodbye properly (laughs) when I came back. Um, So it was then there was this pressure of this conversation because we had Johnny's funeral and then we had to go back for great grandpa's funeral. And so I'm having this conversation about the deadness of the goldfish. and I gave way too much information for my three-year-old in order that I met the needs of our seven-year-old. Uh, but a few weeks later, one of my friends came, so oh, it's a goldfish. Um, and my daughter said to her, you know, in her best, you know what they're like at three going on 30, grown-up teaching voice, she said, oh, she said, it got very sick. So mummy put it in a hole in the ground. <laughs> And I thought, yeah, we've definitely lost we've a few steps a few in steps. between there and I do need to go back. But the lovely thing that the Oxford team was, uh, they gave a public lecture uh, last week. And one of the things that was really reassuring for me, and I think for anybody who's thinking about this with children is, you don't just get one chance to have this conversation. You can go back and chat about it again. And you only have to talk about it for a couple of minutes. You know, their, their attention span is not long. It's not that you're going to sit down and spend an evening talking about death and dying. You'll talk about the goldfish for 10 minutes, at most, probably two minutes, and then they'll be off to do something else that's Lego or telly or or books. And books, there are some fantastic children's books about talking about dying um, and, and stories that we can use as vehicles to have those conversations. Some brilliant things out there now. So if people want to find your book or you, where where's the best place for them to access you? Uh, so I've I've got a website that I'm not terribly good at keeping up to date, but it's got the it's got a lot of the basics there, which is with the end in mind um, The book is called With the End in Mind and it's available you know, at Everywhere. bookshops. Yep. I'm an advocate for independent bookshops. So phone your independent bookshop if you're still in lockdown and ask them to order it for you if you'd like it. And um, it's available as an ebook as well and beautifully read by an actor called Elizabeth Carling. She's done such a great job. I went to, to listen to her recording on the, on the, took her three days. Won't take you three days to listen to it, I hope. But, um, you know, she was so particular and wanted to get it exactly right. And when I heard her voicing those patients, it was like time travel. It was absolutely overwhelming to be back in that room at that bedside, talking to that person, listening to her, giving them a voice. It was just fantastic. Fabulous. I have, I've read it in hard copy, but I'm definitely going to get the, the audio version now. And I hear a rumour that you have a new book coming out. So we will all watch that space with, with I eagle do. eyes. I I do indeed. So if I can, if I can get the uh, the finalising of the draft done in time, it'll be out in September. It's called Listen, 
And it's about those tender conversations, not necessarily death and dying conversations, but we've all got a conversation inside us that we know we need to have, but we just not quite yet, just not quite now. Um, And that sense of when we start this conversation, the things we say and hear can't be unsaid and unheard. And will I get it right? And will I do damage? All those sorts of things. So this is a book about the art of those tender conversations. Wow, I can't wait. I, I, I cannot wait for it. Um, we might have you back to when that is out on sale and we can have another chat about those and uh, and plug that book again. Thank you so much. Oh, that'd be lovely. So very much for coming on and, and for sharing your wisdom and for, for taking the scariness out of something that is inevitable. Um, thank you so much. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you for joining me for that episode. I I got an awful lot out of it and I hope that you did too. Oh God, she's a powerful woman. Um, yeah, thank you. And thank you for supporting the podcast. For those of you who've signed up to Headstuff Plus for extra bonus material, I'm really grateful to you. And if you want to do it, you can uh, go to headstuffpodcast.com. Our graphic design is by Kahlo Gara. Our music is by Only Ruin. And we are produced by Alan Bennett at the podcast studios. And we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Thanks for tuning in. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.